Greetings. In the name of our Lord Jesus. The one that I think we can spend an eternity understanding. And it may still overheat our minds and our hearts. I appreciate the service so far. The opening there where we were exhorted to surrender our all to the Lord. If we really understand what we're doing, it's a joyful surrender because we're gaining so much. We're throwing some junk away so that we can gain some treasure. We do that by faith. And then the children's lesson boils things down to a very simple. So I appreciate that. And now I'm going to come and I'm going to complicate it. <laughs> no. We'll try to go on what the Lord has for us. Um, I have a title here. I really struggle with a title, and I still don't know if this is the best title or not, but the title is God and Community. Not God and Country, God and Community. And we'll just start cracking this subject open this morning. This morning, I'm starting a new series that is is based on a, a theme rather than a book in the Bible, rather than Ruth or Second Peter like I was. It's a theme. And it's on a burden that I've had, but and I've had the burden a long time already, but I didn't share on this burden before because I felt and still feel incapable of feel like I should sit at someone's feet and have someone teach me. That's how I feel. So uh, this burden is there. I feel it's a, it's God's heart. It's it's a vision that we should have. And yet, who who's going to show? Who's going to share that vision? I know Denny Keniston said years ago, he said about a man, a preacher, that before he would share a something new, I don't know if it was new, or some, some truth of scripture, before he would share a truth of scripture, he would purpose to live it out for six months. After he's lived it for six months, then he felt, then I can teach it. Well, how do you do that in an area like I'm thinking of this morning where I, it's, it's a vision. It's an ideal. It's a, it's something I think we should strive for. And yet I feel like I am not where I should be myself. Then I thought of something else. And you, many of you know this truth. Many times when you teach something, 
who gets taught the most? The teacher, right? Uh, okay, here, here's the key. Here's the key. Maybe we just need to step out in faith. I need to step out in faith and let's learn this thing together and I'll probably benefit more than anyone. So that's how I saw the freedom and the liberty to go ahead. So, what is this vision that I desire to grow in and possess? What is this theme? Exactly a, uh, an essay written by John Copeland that I'm sure many of you have probably have read this essay. John Copeland is an author, a counselor, and a teacher. He's written at least 10 books, I believe. Uh, we actually used his book, The Upward Call, for a discipleship class uh, probably several times, I believe, at Harmony over the years. Another one we personally use that he wrote is God's Will for My Body, where he has a uh, workbook to help help assist parents to assist their children to uh, to understand their growing bodies. Well, John wrote an essay that I thought was fitting and very relevant for our time. And I, I had that tucked in the back of my mind for several years already. It probably, it's probably that long that it's been out. So I want to use this essay as an outline and to speak the best I can in our situation here. And it'll be a, a series of messages if I at least feel leading to continue on. And here it is. How many of you read the A Vision for Conservative Anabaptist? How many of you have read that essay by John Copeland's? Okay, one, two, uh, not as many. Maybe more of you will recognize it. Maybe if go on. He, uh, the subtitle is, What are the Challenges and Opportunities for Conservative Anabaptist Church Communities in the 21st Century? What are the challenges? What are the opportunities for conservative Anabaptist communities in the 21st century? That is the question. And so... If you don't know what the article, you haven't read the article, what would you, what would your answer be? What are the challenges and what are the opportunities? What would your answers be? That would be interesting to know. I'm not going to ask them, but you can think a little bit. Well, let's, let's rephrase this. If that question were asked a hundred years ago and we would ask, okay, what are the challenges and the opportunities for the conservative Anabaptist church in the 20th century. It would have asked that in like 1918. And what would have the answers been back then? What are the challenges that we're facing in 1918? What are the opportunities that we have in 1918? And I wonder what for things would have come up. Well, here we are in 2018, and this question is asked. And we recognize that it's, it's, it's to some degree subjective. Uh, 
it's, it's someone's uh, perspective, and we understand that. But uh, I think it would be very helpful. So I, it has actually six challenges, and uh, we're actually going to only get halfway through the first one. But just for the sake of context, I'll go through all six of them. I'll read them off, and you'd, it's probably more than what you can write down. But uh, let's just go through them here. Challenge number one, to build strong, committed church communities in an age of individualism and reluctance to commit. That's the first challenge, and like I said, I will begin with this vision today, but it will take at least at least one more message to finish that one. Excuse me. Challenge number two, to maintain healthy families where children grow up in the security of love and commitment. That's definitely needed in our day, is it not? Challenge number three. To minister to people around us whose lives have been broken by sin and adverse cultural circumstances. The first two are, are developing internally. Number three is beginning to look out. Number, challenge number four. To engage with technological innovations. Taking advantage of the potential without succumbing to the dangers of sinful uses. And that one is very relevant. Challenge number five. To cultivate spiritual maturity so that the weak and struggling members are nurtured. Cultivate spiritual maturity in the congregation that there's spiritually mature people there that can help the ones who are struggling. And challenge number six, to work toward better articulation of our under, to work toward better articulation of our understanding of theology. In other words, that would be up my line. Understand what we believe, why we believe it, how it fits in the greater picture, what God's bigger picture is, and be able to explain it to others. So those are the six challenges, the six points that I would desire by the grace of God, looking at God's heart, looking at his word, and then look at ourselves, looking at our heart and our practices and our experiences and see how it fits with God's purposes and so on. And that includes me just as well as you. So what are the challenges and opportunities for conservative Anabaptist church communities in the 21st century? What is our vision? What is our vision? There in Proverbs, we have in Proverbs 29:18, we have that verse. Where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. So we're going to talk a little bit about vision first, before we get into community. Vision represents thought and purpose and pursuit 
Where there is vision, Ethan, where there is vision, sacrifice to attain that vision is much easier. Um, years ago, I talked to a young man at Harmony, and as we were encouraging each other to, uh, in self-denial, fasting particularly, he told me that it is much easier to fast if you have a burden. And that's true. If you have a burden about something, and then you fast for that, it's easier. It's a vision. That is true for me as well. People are the only creatures that God has created that can actually have vision in the way described that I described. Animals live in the present. Uh, they can store food away for the winter. I think squirrels do that. I think ants do that. I think bees do that and probably some many others. But they do it by instinct, not by vision. People, when God desired man to make man in his image, he made him in such a way that he could think outside of the present. He can think in the abstract. He can, he can conceptualize things in his mind. And he can think, he can plan, and he can work toward a distant goal. He can conceptualize things in his mind and then work toward that vision which is only in his mind. And then he can share that vision that is in his mind with others. And, and others can join him in that vision and you can actually have a collective vision. In fact, that is what a good leader does. A good leader has a vision and persuades others to join him in that vision. That is what a leader does. That is what a father does. That is what a teacher does, right? So the verse states, where there is no vision, the people perish. That means where there is no vision, things fall apart. They scatter. They become disoriented without a vision. People with no vision, and another way to describe it, they, they, um, they throw off restraint. They're not focused or purposed. And why not? Why not throw off restraint? If there's no goal or purpose to move toward, why not just do what is easiest to do? What feels best at the moment? Why not just go off and do your own thing if there is to be a collective vision? If there's no cohesive collective vision, why not just go do your own thing? We heard recently about training dogs. Some of you who have been at Harmony, and he talked mostly about it on Friday evening. Well, dogs were trained to a trail uh, game like hair, uh, hares, they call them hares in Europe, rabbits, 
and foxes. Dogs were trained to follow the trail of of a fox as a sport. In England, they were done that for centuries. Now, one of the things that a trainer could do to test that dog or to actually, um, yeah, train it is to take what they call a, a, what they call a red herring across the trail. So the fox goes, they drag the herring across the trail, and then the dogs are coming behind. And a red herring, of course, that is actually, uh, it's, that's actually a logical term now, because a red herring is when you get distracted. So, um, a red herring is actually a cured fish or a partly cured fish that becomes red in color and it's a very, well, let's say it has a fishy odor, <laughs> pretty pungent odor. So, here's the trail, the faint trail of a fox. They drag the strong trail of a fish across, count, uh, crosswise across that trail and here come the hounds running or the dog and they're running they're following the trail and they get to this other trail that's much stronger now if the dog has a vision for that original intent he can keep going after that animal but if he lacks vision he'll get distracted to a more intense and a more immediate scent, actually a fresher scent. And he will follow that. That's what happens when people lack vision. They are on to something. They have something going for them. But if they lack vision, they will get distracted onto more immediate and more intense things. And if there's any vision, it'll be short-term rather than long-term. The verse also contains the contrasting statement, where there's no vision, the people perish, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Keeping the law. The implication is that keeping the law requires vision. That's the implication in this verse. And why would it not be that way? We walk by faith, not by sight. We need to. Now, which is more immediate and which is more intense? Faith or sight? Sight is more intense. It's more immediate. To walk by faith and to keep the law is like the dog following the faint scent of a fox and coming across this other trail that's more intense. And if the dog... Okay, let's say it this way. That fox leaves a scent and that scent is real. It's a very real scent. The dog is actually following. He knows where it's going. The question is not whether the scent is there. It is there, and he is following it. But then he comes to this more powerful scent. And that that smell, that more immediate smell, I'm going to now allegorize it, it's like the world. It crosses our path. As we are following 
the law, in this case, the Lord Jesus, in this case, we're committed ourselves to the Lord and we're following him. And then we come to some more intense things in our life, like the world, like our pride, like pleasures, like earthly power, like humanistic wisdom. It's the alternative trail to following God. And without a vision, without purpose and faith, people will perish. They will quit following God and be distracted to the more immediate things in this world. They will be distracted from the real trail to an alternative trail. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Blessed is he, Ethan. Not now, maybe, but someday that blessing will come. Much more later. So, what is our vision? What is our vision at Oasis? What is the common purposes and goals that cause us to surrender our rights and sacrifice our time and give our resources for something greater. What is that vision? Do we have a shared vision, a mutual vision? Of course, we can have a common or a, a common cliche. A cliche is a, a pat saying. It's, it's, um, it's a, it's a, a statement you can make easily, and and we can answer that. Oh yeah, we have a common vision. Oh yes, here here's here's some of them. We uh, we are all Christians, and our common vision is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We could say our goal is to love God first and to love others as we love ourselves. Huh, did we hear that this morning? <laughs> we could say well. Whatsoever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord. These cliches. And they're, every one of them is right. They're all right on. They are proper, proper sayings. But these sayings only serve as overarching principles. They're too abstract to give a clear vision of everyday life. They are overriding principles, and they are extremely important as overriding principles. But they are too abstract. I'm going to use another one. Train up in a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That is an overriding principle, but there's no details in that verse how to raise a child, how to train a child. It's a principle. It's true, but it's not detailed. If we are going to train our child properly, we need to search the rest of scriptures. We need to have a right heart ourselves. We need to understand the nature of children. We need to talk to other people who've done it before. That includes reading books and listening to people and talking to them. Um, we need 
practical methods to implement that training, obedience training, attitude training, relationships, correction, encouragement, and, and everything that goes into developing and training a child to raise him up. So we have an overarching principle, but to act to fulfill that, we need to go down to the nitty-gritty of life. So, we have a common vision. We're all going to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But we also need to come down to where we live and how that works out. That is, let's say that is just as important. In fact, we will fail the one without the other. Do we actually have a common vision when it comes to practical matters of life? The Lord said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That is an overarching reality. In fact, that's a promise. Do you believe that promise? I do. I believe that promise. That promise is in the word of God. He said it. He will do it. We do not doubt the Lord. We do not doubt the Lord. Question is, what are the day-to-day details that will contribute to making a reality or making that a reality in our experience? That's the question. Like child training, how is this complex endeavor implemented? Well, John Copeland has given us six practical points which he sees needful to implement as a vision today. So, back to the vision. What are the challenges and opportunities for conservative Anabaptist church communities in the 21st century? And the first one is to build strong, committed church communities in an age of individualism and reluctance to commit. Strong, committed church community. Just imagine what that looks like in your mind. A strong, committed church community. Then imagine the other one. Individualism and freedom and rights. Which is a contrast. If Jesus is going to build his church... If the church and the people of God are going to prevail against the enemy, which of these two scenes will be most effective to accomplish that? First question I want to ask actually is this. Is community really important in the kingdom of God? Is it or is it not one of those things that you can either have or not have? Community. How important is that? Is it an essential part of the Christian's life? Is it part of the gospel? Where in the Bible does God say that community is essential? Let's search out those questions.
Well, in Hebrews, it does say that we should not neglect the gathering together of the saints, right? Okay. So, but is community more than just getting together on Sunday mornings? Okay, we get together Sunday morning. We're gathered together. Now we have community. What is community? Is that community? Community is actually not a Christian phenomenon. Community is a human phenomenon. It's something that all humans, I mean, there'd be a few exceptions. You heard of hermits and things like that, but humans are social creatures. And we interact and we network and we cooperate on more levels than we even generally realize. Um, but communities vary, vary a lot in their composition and their healthiness. We live in communities, but communities vary a lot. Some communities are unhealthy, just like some families, which are a part of this community, are unhealthy. People inside an unhealthy community um, are damaged. Let's say in an unhealthy family or in an unhealthy community are damaged rather than nurtured. And this damage may be mild or it may be severe. And the nurturing, same thing. It can be a little bit of nurturing or it can be enormously nurturing. That's how communities vary. Communities also vary a lot in their strengths. Some communities are strong. Others are weak. Some are cohesive. They have clear perimeters. Others are more fractured. To explain it a little bit about community, and that's a human condition, I'm going to explain the community I grew up in as, a, as an explanation. Because I grew up in a community, just like you did. It was a rural religious community. It was a strong community. Now, growing up as a child, I was largely unaware that I was in a community. It was a little bit like, are you aware as you go about your day-to-day life that you live in the bottom of an ocean of air? Are you aware of that? Of course we're aware of that. But do you think about it? No. And your little children? They'd never thought about it. It's just the way it is. Well, that's how it is in community. I was in a community, grew up largely unaware of it. And the question is, what did this community do to me and for me as I grew up in it? Like air, we live in the atmosphere of our community. And like air, it can be nourishing and healthy, or it can be stale and stifling or unhealthy. But we're in it. Um, Just thinking of uh, an unhealthy community. I heard recently, and some of you might be familiar with it. Excuse me. The... um, 
Romanian orphanages are in the Soviet era are renowned for their well, it was a social experiment. How many of you heard about the social experiment in Romania and their orphanages? A few. Basically, they thought uh, we can, the state can raise children just as good as families, probably better. And, and that children can be raised like animals. They can, they can, they, you, you, you provide them with warmth, provide them with food, you provide them with water, and they'll grow up like calves in a pen. And it was a horrible, horrible experience. It did not work. The children died. They were neglect. They were damaged. They were just, it was a horrible experience. And I, I don't know all the details of it. That was a community for the children. A very damaging community. Anyway, I grew up in, in a community. In this community, there was a full neighborhood of multi-generational families in this community. Great-grandma lived next door till she died at 91. My grandparents were there. My parents were there. My siblings were there. My aunts and uncles and my cousins. And it was all close by. I grew up in a strong family community. Then there were neighbors in a similar multi-generational community. We knew our neighbors for several miles around, most of them personally. We went to school together. We went to church together or a church of a similar perspective, basic view. We traded and interacted and worked together. I grew up in a strong neighborhood community. If a tragedy occurred in the community, whether it be fire or storm, accident, sickness, death, there was a community-sized response to that. There was support on every level, spiritual, financial, physical, labor, emotional, there was money to assist with the big bills and the losses. There was labor to help with chores when there was somebody disabled or a death. There was planning for funerals. There were barn raisings. You know, and as I thought of my community growing up, I thought, what did that do to me? How, what, what was, what was the effect of that community? Because we're looking at community. One of the first things it did is it brought a lot of security to me. I was, I belonged to a community. And I felt like I belonged to a community. In fact, I felt like I was in an integral part of this community. I understood them. They understood me. We thought alike. We believed alike. We lived alike. We were largely a cohesive and a stable community. And I was a part of that. That was the community I grew up in. And I would be taken care of if tragedy struck. Uh, That I was sure of because I had seen it. It was real. Now, 
to remain a part of this community, there was an expectation on each individual as well. It's not just one way. It's a two-way. You could not be an individualistic in this community. You could not be. You needed to accept the norms and the expectations of this community. Norms are the rules of behavior and the thoughts that are accepted within a group. That's what norms are. You needed to accept those norms. Violating the accepted norms of a group is a serious issue. You are not accepting what we believe is right and good. You cannot do that. Not in this community. So being a part of any community brings with it benefits and responsibilities. The benefits were acceptance and friendship and support and security. And there'd probably be a lot more than that. The responsibilities were to help contribute to the whole and to remain in sync with that community. You needed to contribute and you needed to remain in sync. That was your responsibility. And I think there'd probably be more, but those are the ones I thought of. Of course, as I described this community, that's the positive side of the community I grew up in. Like any community, there is a negative side. If you would come in and highlight all the negatives of the community I grew up in, you could come up with a long list. There were some, there were some negatives and some of them were quite serious. A compute, a community that is too tight and too exclusive does protect itself from negative things coming in from surrounding communities. It filters things that would come in and change it and, um, and maybe disrupt it. But a too tight community can also filter out needed change. From others. In other words, each community has its positives and its negatives. A healthy community has many more positives than negatives. An unhealthy community has many more negatives than positives. That's how you can, that's how you could, uh, settle or describe that. But a really tight community filters out Bad things coming in, but it also can filter out good things that should come in. And I just thought of our community growing up. Uh, one of the things was tobacco production and use. That was a negative in our community. Long after the general community had accepted tobacco as being a negative thing, a, an addictive and a dangerous substance, the community I grew up in rejected that. <clears throat> they defended its production and they excused its use. Eventually, that community did actually come around and actually allowed that to filter in to that community. And now that is no longer part of that community. 
But it was a functioning community, and it was a well-functioning community. It provided what a famous counselor once said. This is what he said. Beneath what our culture calls a psychological disorder is a soul crying out for what only community can provide. The problem beneath our problems is a disconnected soul. Community provides connection. Well, there I was, a connected soul inside a healthy, functioning community. But I'm not there today. Why am I not there today? I answered the call of Jesus. And I'm going to read the very verses you read this morning, Ethan. Luke 14. 26 to 27. If any man come after me, come to me rather, and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, and yea, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. When God began to work in my life, Many years ago, I sensed the call to leave that community. To leave behind that acceptance, that security, that support, and to follow Jesus. I forsook, so to speak, my father and my mother. And my entrenched culture to take up my cross and to follow Jesus. And that was a major event in my life, in our life. Now, we might get from this command, and I was going somewhere with you. We might get from this command that community is not important. Following Christ is important. And it is an individualistic call. Christ calls individuals. He calls individual peoples. And he calls people to follow him personally. We have a personal savior. And we have a personal devotions. So following Christ as an individual is most important. Because Christ calls individuals. He does not call communities. Right? So we could get the idea that community is optional or is not as important. We could say that. We could come to that conclusion. So the original question that I had, is community really important in the kingdom of God? Is John Copeland's challenge to build strong, committed church communities something that we should consider important? Where in the Bible does God say or command us to build strong Communities. Is it in Matthew? Is it in Ephesians? Is it in Romans? To 
To answer that question, I'm going to share a principle that I discovered just a few months ago. And I, I wonder what to do with this one. I, I didn't know what to do, but it's a principle, and I, I'm going to, it fits this morning, so I'm going to bring this out. I'm going to frame the question, where does God command us to build strong, committed church communities? And I, I, you're going to have to think. You're going to have to follow through. So put your thinking caps on. And we're going to go to Deuteronomy. We're going to go to the law. Deuteronomy, just one verse. I'll just read it. Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all that do so are abomination unto the Lord thy God. This is a command from the law to the people of Israel. If you do this, it's an abomination. Why do you wear clothing, Stephen? Okay. I thought maybe you'd say to keep it warm, right? Okay. Today you would wear clothing to keep warm, right? Okay. So even the Bible wouldn't say so, you have clothing on today, right? Okay. Why don't you dress girls' clothing? Wear girls' clothing. Oh, no, that's Old Testament. That's not for us today. I, I, I thought about this verse. A woman not to wear what a man's clothing, a man not to wear a woman's clothing. And then I, I thought of some, this verse is making an assumption. Does anybody know what the assumption is? This verse drops into somewhere. Anybody know what it might be dropping into? Anybody want to guess? Yes. Cultural clothing. Cultural clothing. What, what clothing is accepted of a woman? What clothing is accepted of a woman? Okay, you, you're right down the line. It was culturally normal for men and women to dress differently. And this verse drops into that. All right? I mean, then I, then I was thinking, that assumption is that they're already dressing separately, but... In certain cases, they might cross-dress, and that's bad. But they are dressing differently. Then I thought of it. Well, where is the command from God that tells men and women to actually dress differently? The original command. Where's the original command? And I couldn't come up with any. It... This verse assumes that it is normal for men and women to dress differently. They have different articles of clothing. They look different. They are distinctive in their dress. That's the assumption that is in this verse, and it's because of that that the command can be given. But where is that original command? I went back to Adam and Seth and Noah and Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. We go back through history and we can't find any command. I don't know. Maybe there is one. I, I couldn't find any. 
There's no commands. There's no directives from God for men and women to dress differently. And here he drops in this command, don't cross-dress. So I wondered, why is that? Why there's no command to do so, yet it was clearly a social norm. Where is the chapter and verse that commands it? I have come to believe, and this can be my our Sunday afternoon discussion, that nature teaches it. That's what I have come to understand. Like nature teaches, it's a shame. That's what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 11. It's a shame for a man to have long hair. Nature teaches you that. But if a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her. So nature teaches. Well, men and women have different occupations. Men do almost all the dangerous and difficult um, manual work. Let's say it that way. I'm not saying that you don't do difficult work. <laughs> you do. Men, women bear children and men do not. Men look differently at women than they do at other men and differently at women than what women look at men. The two genders function differently in a lot of ways. And a natural result of that is clothing that had was distinctive between the, the genders. I Clothing, I am sure, varied a lot in different cultures. Back then, like it does today, it varies a lot in different cultures. But something that was probably prevalent cultural um, across the cultures was that the genders dressed differently. They, they didn't dress, the different cultures dressed differently, but one that was common is the genders dressed differently in each of those cultures. And that was likely true in heathen cultures as well. And inside of that norm, God says, don't switch clothing with genders. Don't go against nature. I hate it. Now, the reason I brought this in here to explain in here is I believe community is like that. It's a natural human experience. God doesn't need to command community because we are social creatures we don't function without human interaction like we like they found out in the romanian orphans it's a given since the dawn of mankind that we're going to be living in communities and uh, here is the first community in genesis 2 verse 24 therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. There we see community in its embryonic stage, in its formation. It's very down, rock bottom, bedrock foundation of community is right there. Out of this basic human experience flow the rest of community. Out of this flow comes acceptance and cooperation, and support, and security. Out of it flow the networks of human interaction, um, trade, and commerce, and labor, and care. And out of this flow 
common understandings of right and wrong and justice and love and all those things. They, they, this is the bedrock. Next in the hierarchy of community is in Ephesians chapter 6. And you can actually turn there because I'll be reading a number of verses there. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. We'll read that first. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may go well with thee, and that thou mayest live long on the earth. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Here is God-ordained and God-sanctioned community. The family It's an institution where there is structure and there's order. There's duty. On the one side, children obey. And there is responsibility. Well, duty also. Fathers, don't provoke your children. There's an authority structure. With a check and a balance in it. There's a commandment. Fathers, bring up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So there we have the first, we have the first home and then we have the the family. Now we're going to go in a broader church community starting there at verse 5 of Ephesians 6. Servants. Be obedient to them that are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart as unto Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as unto the Lord and not unto men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bound or free. And ye masters, do the same thing unto them, forbearing threatening, knowing that your master also in heaven is also is in heaven, neither is there respect of persons with him. Here again, branching out and going further out, we have an authority structure with responsibilities on both sides. And uh says about servants and masters in this day and age we live into, it means employer-employee. It can mean other relationships too where you have uh, people working together, but primarily that. Servants obey. Masters, treat your employees fairly. You know, that's clearly commanded. But God takes us way beyond that. He says, you employ you Work for your boss as if your boss were the Lord Jesus. It actually does say that. Well, implies that. It actually means that. Work for your boss as if you would work if your boss were the Lord Jesus. But that's the way it is already in the business world, isn't it? As you look around, You see employees all over the place giving utmost honor to their bosses, 
Don't you? There's a little bit of sarcasm here. I remember, like I said, I grew up in a community and I was somewhat limited. I remember the first time I got into the insides and saw the insides of a large business. And this place, it was a um, a chicken processing plant some uh, couple hours away from here where I went every week. And I had to go into that thing and 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 um, and get the things done that I needed to get done. So I was interacting with people inside here. Well, this was a kosher place, and they had beautiful advertising. I mean, they were the best chicken. I mean, if you think USDA chicken is good, well, wait till you get our standards are much higher. And they it was it, you looked at this beautiful company. And you went into the middle of this thing, and it is rotten. The people and their attitudes and their lies, and it was completely different view. That community was not a healthy community. God commands, or he gives direction to us. If you're an employee, you work for your boss, for his well-being, not just when he's looking at you, not just when you can get some brownie points, but when he has somewhere else had no idea what you're doing, you're working for him as if you would for the Lord Jesus. I have a non-biblical quote that I thought would fit here, and it's by a Lord Moulton, which I think is an English man some hundreds of years ago. He says, the greatness of a nation, its true civilization, is measured by the extent of its obedience to the unenforceable. How great, how, how, you have, you have desires that your authorities have but they can't make you do it. There's no real way to enforce it. And you do it anyhow. That is true greatness. Now I know, I know, qualification, disclaimer, there are a lot of laws on the book that the authorities don't even care if you do it or not. And I understand that, and so we need to decipher through all that. But I, I'm talking about real heart here. A person who will do what is best for the whole will do who does the desire of the authorities, even when they know they would not get in trouble if they do that. The greatness of an employee, his true Christ-likeness, is measured by his extent of obedience to the unenforceable. And you bosses... You serve the same Lord Jesus that your employee does, and you treat him as you would treat the Lord. Don't threaten him. Do the will of God from your heart as well. Do your work as if you were doing it to the Lord. So, here's the question. Is God interested in how the larger society functions? It, it appears like God is interested. In other words, he does not need to command us.
to have community. What he does is he gives us commandments or direction in how to have healthy communities. That is his heart. He has a keen interest in how communities function. Community is a given. We will be in communities. Will we be in healthy communities? We could go on to Romans 13 and we could talk about another dimension of community, which is government. Is God interested how we relate to the government community? And we look at the word of God and say, yes, he is. He's very interested in that as well. But I'm not going to expound on that just to bring attention that it is there. So, this morning, what I'm doing here is giving an introduction to a series of messages, the vision for Anabaptist communities, and the first vision of that vision is to build strong, committed church communities in an age of individualism and reluctance to commit. This morning, we spend most of our time exploring what community is and how God is interested in how it functions. That's what we did. Now, the next time, the next message, I will plan to speak directly on the first challenge where we talk about training up a child in the way he should go and you need to get to actually to where it really comes down to it. That's what I would like to do next time. This is where I'm going to struggle. What is it, Lord? How? What are the dimensions and the nuances and the hearts and the sacrifices and all those things that come together to build a strong, committed church community? That's what I plan to speak next time to build a strong, committed church community in the 21st century. So, I guess I would say I would also welcome, welcome your input and your direction as we seek that together. So, why don't we just kneel for a word of prayer, if you can. Lord, as we kneel before you, we acknowledge you as our Lord, we recognize that you have made us as social creatures and that we operate in communities and that uh, we, our communities have a, a large bearing on how we and how our children and how others around us, how they prosper, how they are nurtured, how they grow, how they are healthy or else the other way as well. Lord, we know you are greater than all our communities. We know, Lord, that you act in spite of it. And yet, we, Lord, it is clear in your word that you have a will and purpose. Help us, Lord, to discover it. Help us, Lord, to function in it. And help us, Lord, to propagate it. And, Lord, to be everything you want us as a congregation and a church to be. Lord, that promise that we have that uh, you will build your church the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Lord, that is a true promise. Help us, Lord, to be right in the center of that. 
We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.